This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. You know, this morning, Tripler Hospital is holding a news conference to talk about the vaccine rollout for its medical staff and its active duty military dependents. We wanted to know about the plan for military veterans. There are an estimated 140,000 veterans spread across the Pacific region with VA facilities across Hawaii, as well as in Samoa, Guam, and the Northern Marianas. The Veterans Affairs Office just hosted a virtual town hall meeting to take questions from its members about when they will be offered the chance to be vaccinated. Amy Rolfs is the public affairs officer for the VA. We talked to her yesterday afternoon while the first of the Pacific Islands VA staff in Guam was getting their first shots. Guam is where America's Day begins, and the staff there was able to get access to the vaccines sooner than Hawaii. We've been working with the Department of Health in Guam, American Samoa, and in the Northern Marianas. And they will be partnering with them to administer the vaccine. And our 26 employees at the Guam um, CBOC will be receiving the vaccine. And tell us about the staff here throughout Hawaii. Our first shipment is coming any day now. We know that it is in customs as we speak. And so what we've done as a planning team, our VA Pacific Islands uh, vaccine distribution planning team has prepared by um, knowing what logistics we're going to need to do, We've actually done a run-through of actually it coming and um, how it's going to be put in the freezers, how it's going to be distributed to the first will be our frontline staff. So we've actually um, put out a survey to our staff who is willing to actually receive the vaccine and they will get the vaccines first. Can you share with us the results of that survey? So we're, we have about 1,400 employees and about um, 800 have responded to the survey and about half of the responses are they are willing to receive the vaccine. We want to make sure that, you know, the frontline staff is going to be tiered as far as who is actually going to get it. And after that, it will be our kapunas, our veterans in our Center for Aging Nursing Home. How many veterans do we have here on Oahu? We have a 60-bed facility. How will that rollout happen? Is it likely that we'll get the Moderna vaccine? We are prepared for either, but we believe it's going to be the Moderna, and yes, they will be the first ones to receive it. And then what about the neighbor islands? Because we have a large uh, listener base scattered throughout the state. And uh, what can you share with our listeners about that? So we have a plan to roll it out. Once it's received, it will be received here on Oahu first. And it's limited, right? But we are prepared to then distribute it to the neighbor islands and to Guam, Samoa, and Saipan. And I know freezers have been purchased. I know that the teams are getting ready to how they're going to actually distribute it. Because once it's been open, it needs to be distributed quickly. What are some of the issues that have come up just with dispatching the vaccine? You know, we're so far away, and so I know that, that you know, with everything coming to the islands, it's taking longer. I know that there are 37 VAs that were selected to actually administer and distribute the vaccine already, and, you know, we are not one of them. Coming, though, we do know that for sure. You folks just held a town meeting uh, with your veterans across the Pacific. What kinds of questions came up? Our virtual veterans town hall with our 40 veterans that participated, some of the questions were when it was going to be available to the outer islands. I think specifically Kauai veterans were calling to find out. And I do know that they wanted to know if they could like reserve a vaccine. What we're saying is for them to check in with their primary care because it's going to be the veterans who are of high risk that will be given the vaccine first. High risk meaning age, you know, they're older or they have a immune suppressant issue. So if they feel that they may need it or want it, we're, we're encouraging our veterans to call and let us know if they would like it. Ultimately, our plan 
And our goal is to ensure that every employee and veteran who would like to get the vaccine will get the vaccine. How close are you working with the military? You know, is the vaccine coming over on military planes or is it commercial aircraft? We're told it's actually UPS. Give us some idea of the numbers out in Guam and Samoa. Total, we have 140,000 veterans in all of the Pacific. Registered to the VA, we have 55,000 veterans registered for their VA health care. So what I want to remind our veterans is if they are not registered for care with the VA, but now is a great time to register because what I'm being told, and this is what our pharmacist explained, is if you get the first shot from the VA, you automatically get the second shot reserved for you. So it's a two-shot vaccination. So they won't be able to like get the vaccine, the first shot somewhere else from the VA for the second shot. It's, um, uh, it's being distributed as two shots. In the, in the vaccination series. So if there's a veteran out there that is not yet in your system and is interested in getting the shot, now's the time to sign up. Right. We have a virtual new veteran orientation and it helps them register. We do it all virtually now. So they can call our 1-800-214-1306. Say they would like to register for their VA health care attend the new veteran orientation who will we help them step by step on how to register and then from there we can get them to seeing their primary care and then they can get their vaccine covered. Okay and for the folks that may have missed the webinar this week will that be available uh, online somewhere at some point? Yes we are going to post it on Facebook and in the director's message we'll add the link to it. And to get the director's message on our website, hawaii.va.gov, you can submit your, your email address to hawaii.va.gov on our website. There's a place you can submit your email, and an, a weekly email goes out to our veterans with every all the updates. So uh, we'll have the link in that weekly update. That was Amy Rolfs, Public Affairs Officer for the VA Pacific Islands Program, which includes Samoa, Guam, and the Northern Marianas. For links about the VA rollout, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. And it's now time for our reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Uh, He'll be talking about the skepticism growing around the COVID-19 vaccines. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, this is a what a story that you have online uh, written by Brittany Light. Right, and I'm filling in for Brittany because she's getting her much-deserved vacation. Good for ah. her. And <laughs> it, is a, it is an important report. Some people may have noticed um, a couple of weeks ago there was a, a study coming out from the UH Public Policy Center, and it said, and this story today includes the same data, that 44% of residents here in the islands, they're, they're not going to take the, the vaccine uh, even when it becomes available. That's actually an increase of about 7 percentage points from another survey, same group, back in August. And uh, who is it that's afraid of doing this? Well, uh, according to that survey, women, uh, Republicans, people from poor households, they are less likely uh, to take the, take the test. Now, now, why is this? Well, good question. Colin Moore, who runs that center, says probably has a lot to do with just fear about whether it's safe or not. But as well, he thinks it's wrapped into it is is his general anxiety and distrust that is so evident right now of our federal government. Well, and we just watched the politics uh, that, you know, uh, Mm. uh, you know, just just a few weeks ago about whether this thing was being rushed and was it going to be safe, right? Right. And, you know, but for right now, the CDC doesn't actually have an ad campaign, which they have promised to do to educate the public on this. Uh, According to Brittany's story, that probably will change when the Biden administration uh, comes in January 20th. Uh, But what more and others have said is they're worried that that window is narrowing in which people, you know, can can get the vaccine or become comfortable with accepting it. Um, By the way, there's also no campaign yet from the State Department of Health. Uh, there is other groups, however, are 
including a Native Hawaiian Pacific Island COVID task force that's actually working on a campaign to, to let people know it's okay to take the vaccine. Well, you know, it's funny because I just uh, bumped into someone uh, who represents an agency, and they said they were uh, encouraged to submit a proposal for the vaccine mm. campaign. Uh, they didn't get it, but uh, they yeah. said it was kind of last minute. Uh, so they submitted something, but, um, you know, we don't know who who got the uh, the contract and when that's going to start. Yeah, what, what Colin Moore said is he's he's worried that, you know, with social media, really the spread of disinformation, here's how he described it, would be like the spread of the virus itself. It's it's really something you can't control. And as we all know or should know that the goal of this vaccine is to get uh, herd immunity for a population. And that means that enough people uh, are immune, have received the vaccination, that they have greatly reduced the chance that you're going to spread it to other people. So how many people is that in a population? 70%. So if you've got 44% saying, wait a minute, I'm not sure I'm going to take this, that's a worry. One positive indicator I should also mention in that study from UH is that 37% say they're unsure about that. So Colin Moore says that's kind of a silver lining, right? Those are the people that you need to target to get the information out there that that it's fine to take the vaccine and serve as models for others. Well, I was kind of surprised because uh, I was watching uh, and I saw that uh, uh, police chief Susan Ballard said that (laughs) she's a little worried about getting the vaccine. Yeah, that kind of took people by surprise. That was just yesterday. And uh, she said, uh, Chief Ballard, she's on the fence. She says she doesn't even get flu shots. Um, it's something about upsetting the balance of the body. I, the, the chief didn't go into exactly what that means. But, you know, I think what the chief is getting at is it's something that a lot of people worry about in this country. There is a, a large anti-vax movement. Uh, it's been uh, politicized by a lot of celebrities. And, and let's frankly, there's a history in this country where we haven't always done well when it comes to uh, health treatment. Think of the Tuskegee study of right. the 20th century that continued into into the present day. And there's people worried. Are there going to be side effects? Did we, did we rush this too quickly? It was pretty remarkable that uh, it's really a miracle in many ways that we're having the vaccine now being distributed this week here in the islands and elsewhere. Right. Okay. We'll just have to keep an eye out for the state's uh, vaccine campaign. Uh, We imagine it will be coming soon. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Civil Beats Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Brittany Light's story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the exhibition Kamran Samimi, In Stillness, with works exploring ideas of space, time, and impermanence. HonoluluMuseum.org Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Sherry Ruth Anderson, author of Ripening Time. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about inside stories for aging with grace. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mercedes-Benz of Honolulu, featuring this season's winter lineup of new and pre-owned SUVs and cars at the showroom and online at mercedesbenzofhonolulu.com. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Hawaii 
For today's quiz, we look at a giant of the gridiron. Jesse Sapolu was born in Samoa in 1961. He played high school football at Farrington in Kalihi, where he was an all-state offensive lineman. His college football days continued on Oahu, where he played four years at the University of Hawaii. In 1983, he was drafted by two teams, the Oakland Invaders of the USFL and the San Francisco Francisco 49ers of the NFL. He made a wise choice and signed with the 49ers. While the USFL folded after the 1985 season, Sapolu played 12 years in the NFL. He won four Super Bowls and was named to two Pro Bowl teams. While wearing the red and gold, he wore the number 61, the year of his birth. But what number did he wear during his UH days? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to strengthening communities statewide by supporting affordable housing, providing infrastructure, and creating jobs. Learn more at nairithawaii.com. As 2020 comes to a close, many small business owners are looking back on a devastating year. While various programs have offered support in the ways of payroll protection or pivot grants, more entrepreneurs are asking the question, why isn't our government doing more? The Conversations producer, Harrison Patino, reached out to various members of Hawaii's small business community to see what they had to say. It's no secret that Hawaii small businesses are struggling. While various programs have been rolled out to help cover certain operational costs, A growing number of small business owners say they're not being given the proper resources to survive during the pandemic. A lot of small businesses are doing their best to hang on, but without additional help at the state, federal, or local level, they aren't going to make it. That's Melissa Pavlicek, the Hawaii State Director of the National Federation of Independent Businesses. The organization represents roughly 900 small businesses which, on average, generate less than a million dollars a year in revenue and employs fewer than 10 people. Pavlicek says that while government aid programs like the Hawaii Business Pivot Grants have been able to offer short-term relief for some Hawaii entrepreneurs, not all small businesses can change their business models as effectively as others. Small businesses in Hawaii, and especially those that are members of NFIB, have opportunities and have given thought to how can they sell their products and services elsewhere, even if they hadn't been thinking about that previously. There's obviously a lot of challenges with that when you're a service business. It may be difficult to translate that to a service you can provide elsewhere, but this is where a lot of digital transformation is taking place and companies are thinking about how can they provide services through the Internet or in other ways to place to people in Hawaii. That isn't the cure-all because other places not in Hawaii are also suffering an economic downturn, so it's not like there are these pockets of customers just waiting to spend money for any small business, whether they're here or elsewhere, but it definitely does open up some new opportunities. I know a lot of the NFIB members are small professional services, such as dentists, accountants, and other small offices, and they've also been making adjustments. One of the biggest, of course, is limiting the number of people in an office at one time. And this is entailing a lot of scheduling and making sure that people don't come to their appointment too early and they have a waiting room that's not filled to capacity and they have proper social distancing and protective equipment. So I think it really depends on the type of business. And NFIB represents almost a 1,000 businesses in Hawaii of many different sectors. But I think there are a lot of commonalities as well. And so one of the common things that businesses are doing is to really train their workforce and stagger the schedules and work with employees on safety and health protocols. That's something that every business that comes in contact with members of the public has to do. 
And I think we're seeing that across the board. Since tourism accounts for nearly a quarter of the state's economy, the hardest hit businesses have been those closely associated with the visitor industry. Without further aid at county, state, and federal levels, many more expect they will have to close. I mean, we've got businesses that are struggling now, and we've got some that are already closed. And whether or not they can ever reopen may depend on whether or not some help is made available. For those that are struggling, you know, how long they can continue to hold on is the question. Ron Heller is a tax attorney and the Hawaii Leadership Council chairman for the NFIB. He says that while slight adjustments can be made to operating procedures in response to the pandemic, the largest obstacles are the ones that can't be bypassed with savvy business practices. For most small businesses, the two biggest cost items are salaries and rent. Um, I mean, that, that's pretty much true across industries, although it varies from, from one business to another. Um, and in general, you know, salaries you can reduce by putting people on leave or, or furloughing employees or even firing people, but that has unfortunate ripple effects. I mean, then you've got a bunch of people who no longer have incomes, and so that creates its own set of problems. Uh, and then the other big cost for most small businesses is occupancy cost, you know, the, the rent and utilities and all of those things that they have to pay for their, their stores or warehouses or whatever. And unfortunately, a lot of that can't really be pushed off. I mean, for businesses, if you don't pay your rent, eventually you're going to get kicked out. And even though there have been some relief provisions for individuals on a, a commercial lease, a business lease, it's a little tougher to say, well, I just can't pay, but don't kick me out. A lot of it kind of depends on luck in the sense of are you in a business that can easily transition to online commerce or are you in a business that's heavily dependent on people physically walking into your store? I mean, take, for example, say a T-shirt shop in Waikiki. They're dependent on people walking past the store and, you know, a certain percentage of them are going to look in the window and see something that's interesting and decide to come in. And without that happening, you know, their, their sales just aren't there. If, if we don't have a lot of people walking down the street in Waikiki and physically walking into stores like that, they have a tough time. On the other hand, if you're, for example, an accounting firm where most of your work is services rendered to clients and, and most of it does not require the client to physically visit your office, then it may not have much impact if, if people aren't you know, walking around on the street doing their shopping. Uh, so it all depends on what kind of business you're in. Unfortunately, for the, the people who are in a business that depends on a lot of walk-in traffic, it may not be easy to substitute for that. And while many are pinning their hopes of a quick economic turnaround on the rollout of the various COVID-19 vaccines, Heller says that most small business owners identify federal relief as their strongest hope for survival. And while the details of the latest congressional bipartisan relief bill were revealed earlier this week, many remain skeptical of its ability to adequately address the many difficulties facing small business. We're not going to be back to, to normal for years. You know, even if we have a successful vaccine, it's going to take months to get it manufactured and distributed and, and you know, given to people to the point where it, it really allows businesses to reopen. So, you know, the fact that vaccines are being announced now doesn't mean that suddenly things are going to be better next week or even next month. So I think small businesses are still worried about long-term survival. In addition to a perceived lack of adequate aid for the state's independent businesses, some entrepreneurs continue to criticize the government restrictions which have adversely affected their business. According to Oahu-based florist Tamron Amontillad, the wedding industry has been particularly overlooked by the state. Before COVID, I was really picking up momentum. This year, 2020, I actually had like a lot of weddings, a lot of business I was supposed to get this year. And as soon as COVID came, it came at a really bad time because May is like a really big month for florists. It kind of like carries us through the whole year because it's a lot of weddings. It's a lot of graduation. So people are ordering lace, a lot of Mother's Day arrangements. So when... COVID hit, all the flower shops had to close because they were retail. So even if I could do contactless pickup and delivery and everything like that where it's completely contactless, there was no way for me to even get in any of the materials that I needed. And I think for a lot of the florists, we really just thought like it was going to be shut down for a month and then everything would pick up again. But because there's no social gatherings allowed, then there's no wedding. So there's just nothing for us to do pretty much. For Amontillad, little has been done to ease her business woes during the pandemic. While the rollout of a vaccine has offered a brief glimmer of hope, the process is likely to take months. With a full economic recovery years away, struggling small business owners face a frustrating dilemma. 
I don't feel like they're doing enough because it is kind of crazy to tell people just to stop working, but you're not stopping people's bills or you're not giving them assistance to pay bills. So now people are trying to look in other directions to find funds. I think that the government has completely ignored the wedding industry. They want money to come into the state, but they don't realize that the wedding industry is a $16 billion industry every year. It brings in that much money to the state. For me, it just doesn't make sense that you can go to a, a restaurant and you can sit in a restaurant with five people in a household at the same table indoors in a restaurant, but you can't have a wedding if you have five people at the same table, like the same guidelines as a restaurant and you're outdoors with circulating air. It just, to me, it just doesn't make sense. You've been listening to Harrison Patino talking to a cross-section of Hawaii's small business community about what they perceive is a lack of available resources during this pandemic. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dr. David Hiranaka on Hawaii Island, specializing in dental implant surgery and facial cosmetic surgery, utilizing 3D imaging. drdavidhiranaka.com. Ten years ago, longtime Arab leaders faced a wave of popular protests that swept across the region. Every single city, every single town in the whole country was out protesting. But what followed in much of the Arab world was violence and a refugee crisis. Today, some ask if it was all worth it. If I went back in time, yeah, I'll do it again. People who lived through the Arab uprisings tell their stories on the world. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Today, we turn our attention to the remote settlement of Kalaupapa, which up until this month was the only county that was COVID-19 free. Kaohana O Kalaupapa, Executive Director Val Monson, talked about a virtual concert that was part music, part documentary. It focuses on the musicians at the Hansen's Disease Settlement. The idea was something that Monson had 20 years ago, and it came to fruition this year, our year of the pandemic and isolation. You know, when I first started going, to Kalapapa in 1989, you know, one of the things that really surprised me was how much a part of the community music was. And, you know, as I did more reading, it just seemed music was, was a part of the community even in the, even in the early days, you know, when they had choirs and bands. And I just feel that this was a way it helped people to heal. It brought joy where maybe you might not have expected to find that. And I just felt that, you know, as I got to think about it more and more, and I just thought, you know, music was just such an important part of this community. You know, and the musicians, of course, who wrote so many of these songs, you know, have been forgotten over the years. So you're paying tribute to them. Yeah. And you were also trying to come up with a way to be able to fundraise for the monument. Exactly. So the concert itself is free, but it is serving as a fundraiser for the memorial, for the Kalapapa Memorial that will display the names of, you know, the nearly 8,000 people, you know, who were taken from their families and sent away. You know, those many of those people have also been forgotten. So, you know, I mean, what Ka'ohana o Kalapapa, you know, certainly one of our mission, part of our main, main mission is to remember everybody, to remember everybody by their name and people's accomplishments, which have often been forgotten in this history. Well, share with us. Talk about some of the musicians from the settlement. Well, the person who I knew the best was Bernard Punikaya. Yes. Um, you know, some people today may remember Bernard. He was quite a leader, not only at Kalaupapa, but in Hawaii. And he was a very prolific musician and just wrote many songs about different subjects. The most well-known song is Kalaupapa, My Hometown which is really kind of a, a love letter to Kalapapa, how much he loved it. And then also to Hale Mohalu, the facility, the residential facility in Pearl City yes, that was eventually torn down. Yes, and that was when I first met Bernard. 
he was involved in the protests, you know, about, you know, how that all was being handled. And that was my first introduction to Bernard. Yeah, and so we talk about that in in the in the concert. So, you know, I tell people that the concert is it's actually part concert and part documentary because we talk about the musicians and backgrounds of the of the songs as well. And you know, this comes at a time where we're just learning about a positive case of someone there at Kalapapa. And when you think about, you know, just the parallels with what was back then an infectious disease and the isolation, it just kind of touches your heart. It does. And and we thought we thought that was a good reason to have this concert at this time. You know, I think when we when we hear people, we're always complaining, right, that we have to stay home, that we can't go to restaurants as much, that we can't do this. And think of what the people of Kalapapa experienced. They were taken away from their families. They didn't have the option of a 14-day quarantine. They were sent away, and for most of those people, they never saw their loved ones again. And yet, many of those people rebuilt their lives and found love and happiness. And I think that, you know, this will help us now. It, it helps put things in perspective. And I think it shows us that we are going to get through this pandemic. And so tell us where we're at on the fundraising for the memorial. We were just actually starting. We started at the end of last year with a a small fundraising project with the families. And then we were at the legislature where Senator Kalani English had introduced a bill for funding for $5 million from the legislature. And we had such great hearings in the Senate. We had hearings scheduled in the House on the very morning that they shut down because of COVID. And so we thought we were well on our way. And then, you know, like so many other people, we've just been slowed down by COVID. But, you know, we're going to get going again, and uh, we're going to raise the money. You hadn't planned on this concert being virtual, but in a way it's probably been a blessing because then maybe your outreach can go further. That's what we think. One of the silver linings is that thinking more about doing things virtually. We're trying to think of other things we can do in the future as well. I mean, we don't want to stop our in-person presentations and gatherings. You know, we hope we can get those going, you know, when it's safe again. But I think it's also good to do, to include virtual presentations to reach more people. You know, I mean, anybody in the world can watch this concert. Yes, there can be people in Belgium. And there are. And in other countries. So the musicians, the present-day musicians that have uh, offered their time and talent uh, toward this effort, uh, tick down the list. Brother Noland, Melvin Lead, Kevin Brown, Makana, Lopaka Ho'opi'i, and then, of course, Stephen Inglis. Are they then playing some of the songs um, from um, the musicians from Kalo Papa? Yes, yes. So the way it, it kind of happened is that Stephen Inglis, slack key guitarist, who he has known the people of Kalapapa since he was a boy. His, his parents were very involved at Hale Mohalu. And he's also recorded songs of Kalapapa with Dennis Kamakahi. And so I contacted Stephen about the virtual concert, and he, he liked the idea. And so he got the word out to different musicians, and it turned out that all the musicians who responded had ties to Kalapapa which made it even better. Nice. And then uh, Stephen's friend, Chris Lau, who's a musician and a producer, he agreed to produce this for us. And Billy V, the radio and TV personality, agreed to do the narration. And so I wrote the script and pulled together a lot of photos. And Chris took all of these pieces. The musicians all did their videos on their own. And uh, so we've got a couple of musicians did their songs sitting on the beach. Someone else was on a lanai in the studio. So all these different locations. And Chris pulled all of this together and just, I couldn't be happier with how it turned out. And two of the musicians actually had family at Kalapapa. So that's even better. I mean, they talk about their family connections to Kalapapa. Very and, inspiring. And tell us about ways. the Ohana, about how, how that all got started. Well, it actually got started. That was Bernard Punikaya again. I mean, you knew Bernard you knew what a visionary he was. And in the mid-90s, Bernard was concerned that as the Kalapapa community was getting older and the numbers were getting smaller, he was very worried that their voices would no longer be heard and that the future of Kalapapa would be directed by people who didn't even know them. And so it was his 
idea that we'd be bringing together family members and friends of the community to be with the Kalapapa residents to make sure that their wishes for the future were carried out. And uh, what's the membership today? We just mailed out our newsletter to over uh, 1,200 people. So we keep growing. We keep hearing from people. One of the things that we've done, which we weren't expecting to do in the beginning, is we help people find information about their families. And so we have compiled over the years, we have a digital resource library of different registers and records and, you know, different, different things that include information about the people of Kalapapa. We started doing this for the memorial, gathering the names. And since then, we've been hearing from a lot of people. We've helped um, at least 800 descendants reconnect to their Kalapapa ancestors. So that's, you know, one of the big, one of the big things that we have done over the years. Well, that, yeah, that must be so gratifying because there may be people who, you know, didn't realize that they had relatives who, you know, were down there. Exactly. So what, what happens is that we usually hear, when we hear from somebody, they sometimes only have a name. And they'll say, you know, we were told that this person was at Kalapapa. And I would say, Catherine, probably 90 to 95% of the time we find information on those people. We don't for everybody, and I know that's always disappointing for those family members. But for the most part, we do find information on, on people, and the family members are just so thrilled. I think recently we talked to John Clark, who wrote the book about the place yes. names. And during his journey and his research, he found out that he had a relative down there. You know, I think that when people went to Kalapapa, you know, I mean, they were afraid and lonely, but it was the community that took them in and made them see that, you know, there was hope and, yeah. you know, there was love. Well, we thank you for spreading the story and the music and, uh, and people can then just go online on Facebook and, and check it out. Kalapapa Ohana and otherwise on YouTube, on Stephen Inglis's YouTube. But I would just say go to our website. We've already got the announcement up, www.kalapapaohana.org. It begins, it begins December 19th at 19th. 1 o'clock, and we're going, through the, we're going through January 3rd. And the reason we decided to rebroadcast it was because we realized that people were going to be home more than usual these holidays and looking for something to do. And so we hope this is something that will, you know, brighten their day. That was Val Monson with Ka'ohana Okalopapa. She was talking about a rebroadcast of a concert honoring the musicians of Kalopapa. The virtual event, again, runs December 19th through January 3rd. It's a fundraiser to help build a memorial to include the 8,000 names of people who were sent to live out their lives at the settlement. Take a listen now to Dennis Kamakahi and Stephen Inglis singing Kalopapa, My Hometown. In today's Backyard Quiz, we take a look at Jesse Sapolu. He is the only football player from Hawaii with four Super Bowl rings, winning the NFL championship as part of the San Francisco 49ers while playing with Hall of Fame quarterbacks Joe Montana and Steve Young. During his 12-year professional career, he returned to Hawaii for two Pro Bowls in 1993 and 1994. Prior to his professional days, he had a standout career on Oahu at Farrington High School. He was an all-state offensive lineman. He continued at Manoa with the University of Hawaii, where he received several honors, including All-Western Athletic Conference First Team in 1980 and an AP All-American Honorable Mention. With the 49ers, he wore the number 61 for the year he was born. 
But at UH, he wore the number 76. That was the answer we were looking for. And congratulations to Kevin from Palolo. He got it right. And the reason why he got it right is he owns the jersey. How cool is that? That's today's quiz. If you have one, you can send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, serving the islands for 150 years through job creation and civic support. A and B, building partnerships in Hawaii with a commitment to respect Hawaii's communities, people, cultures, and environment. It's just not the holidays without the Nutcracker, and so Hawaii Public Radio presents a gift to the community. Ballet Hawaii's The Nutcracker with the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra set in the 1858 Kingdom of Hawaii, incorporating a blend of new and previously recorded productions from years past. Watch it December 19th at 7 p.m. on KITV Channel 4. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Earlier this week, we talked about a new memoir writing program from Watermark Publishing called the Halea Aloha Series. The series editor is Darren Shugi, who also produced a new memoir called Allegiance, using the micro-narrative techniques in the program. Here's an excerpt from the book titled Photograph, Poolside Selfie at the Four Seasons Huala Lai. The four of us seated in a row, my brother, me, my sister-in-law, my husband. My sister-in-law is pregnant and my husband holds our five-month-old daughter in his lap, a portrait of two families in the making. Our bodies angled toward the camera as if this promised land will stop time from moving forward. The frame of towering palm trees and perfect blue skies evidence a holiday from life, not life itself. My brother and his wife will divorce within a year. A decade later, he and I will no longer speak. Other bodies will assume the position in these chairs. Other bodies will believe this paradise. Wow, powerful. Gee also has another book out this year called Small Other Small Histories, published by the Poetry Society of America. She spoke with the conversation's Jason Ubai about her recently re- released works. I originally created Allegiance because I knew that people didn't know what a micro-essay was or what these short forms that I was really excited about, what, what the program what it might be. But it was interesting because as I started putting it all together, it moved from being a teaching text into me really wanting to share my story or, you know, a sliver of my story. As you know, a memoir is usually a slice of your life. And then I look at these short forms, these microforms as sort of a bite. So instead of having the whole cake at one time, you're actually having a few bites at a time. And so as I was working and putting these things together, I actually was getting, I wouldn't say I was getting emotional about it, but I was really moved by how important a lot of these stories were to me and then also how important they were for me to actually have them be present in the world and on the page for my kids but also sort of as a witness to my own life and i don't say that and i don't think any most memoirs do it as from a egotistical point of view but it's more of a place of saying you know i had these experiences and they felt really important and again they shaped who i am and the decisions I've made, and I, I wanted to share this part of me with you. And I think it's also, I think it's cool to see different people's perspectives on things. And so as I was writing that, I just thought I'd write this, and I'd be like, I bet my kids don't know this about me, or this is something that I never really wrote about, about something in my childhood, and I didn't realize how much it was still lingering sort of on the fringes of my mind. And so I got those down, and then, I, of course, I spent the time crafting it, and, you know, sort of layering in a lot of things to amplify the lyricism, which was important to me in this work. Everyone's going to be different with their work, and that will be my job as series editor to help people find their voice. But for myself with Allegiance, it was really about family. It was about ties, connections and reconnections. You know, for me, it was an identity piece about being Chinese-American. You know, what does that mean? And being Chinese-American in Hawaii, what does that mean? And, you know... How do we, where do we put our allegiances? And so for me, when I landed on that theme, and theme is a really good part of any memoir, that really put a lot of things in perspective for me for this book. I know in, in the book you mentioned your brother and uh, you hadn't talked to him for a while, but he recently uh, reached out to you? So it's pretty, it's, 
it's one of these funny things that happens when you write and can put something alive in the world is that it kind of energetically, I don't know. I mean, I know that sounds kind of woo-woo, but it, it just kind of puts things in motion. And so I wrote about, I mean, a couple of places in the book and one full essay on this uh, called Artifact. I wrote about how my brother and I have been estranged for the past 20 years and pretty much incommunicado for the past 10. And I'd sort of made my peace with it. I wasn't happy with it. It caused me a lot of grief and a lot of sorrow, but I was kind of like, well, that's probably how it'll be. And and I thought it would be like that for the rest of my life. And a week before the book was published, it was mid-October, he reached out to me out of the blue. He didn't know about the book because we hadn't advertised about it or anything like that. And we reconnected. And we have since talked daily. And we usually FaceTime. We text. We email. We get on the phone. And it's been, I think, honestly, just it's been the biggest thing that I'll remember for 2020 next to the pandemic. It's, it was a huge deal. And I sent him the book. I said, hey, just so you know, this is coming out. I didn't know that we were going to reconnect. But here it is. And it was a huge, powerful healing moment for both of us when he read it. And he called me afterwards and was really emotional. And it was it was really powerful. And what that reminded me of is that we always write for ourselves first. In other words, you write the thing that feels most true and authentic. And you just share your own experiences. You know, we can't control what other people think or do. Um, but we share where we are. And that that can change things and move things in small ways or in this case, in a really big, powerful way. Uh, you also have another book out in 2020. It, it shares uh, some of micro memoirs as well with Allegiance, other small histories. Can you tell me what was uh, what compelled you to write that book? Other Small Histories, which was published this year by the Poetry Society of America, was actually originally written with the same intention of all of these micro stories and essays that I've been doing. I call them micro narratives. And it was really me trying to understand my matrilineal line. We had a lot of family secrets. We have a lot of women in my family tree who are unnamed, some who were mistreated. And we also had a very complicated scenario with my grandfather, who was a actually very loving and very caring person um, who had, as I discovered as I got older, um, that he had what I consider three wives. He had a village wife, which was an arranged marriage, um, his marriage to my grandmother, which was a legal marriage, and they were Christian. And then he had an affair and had a civil ceremony with his third wife, but he was still married with my grandmother. This is during the war in China, so it was very complicated. And I was really trying to find a way to give these women a voice. And so I did play with the form, and that's one reason why it appears as poetry rather than nonfiction, because I had to do some visualization about these pieces. Although I would say that if people were going to include that as a micro-essay or micro-memoir piece, it could probably double as that. A lot of these pieces were previously published in different literary journals and fall under nonfiction or crave nonfiction and poetry and just micro as a general general title. So for me, it was just, again, me trying to understand my family, give voice to these women in my family tree, and to do it in these small, really intense fights, because the truth of the matter was I didn't have a lot of information. So I didn't want to build up a complicated backstory that may or may not be true. So I gave myself a limit of 250 to 300 words to tell their story and to try to understand what I was experiencing through what I knew of them and to make those very few words really work and amplify what I thought was their truth or my version of their truth. Yeah, I, I found them very powerful and, you know, it was very vulnerable for you to, to write these, to write these narratives. And since, you know, you, you may not have all the facts and you don't, you know, like you said, you don't want to create a complicated backstory. What kind of pressure did you feel to, when you were writing that you were honoring them, but also, you know, revealing their, their truth. You know, I think there's probably a reason that in my, you know, 20 plus years as a published author, I started in fiction. I stayed pretty much in fiction. And then I went to nonfiction, more, you know, traditional how-to type books. And then I went to poetry. And then I finally landed on personal essay and in memoir. And I think the reason why is because it's actually hard to tell your story because you're, you always question your, you know, is this true? I mean, and then when you talk about true, what does true mean, right? Are we talking about factual truth? Are we talking about emotional truth? 
And I, I think when we talk about memoir and personal essay, I really, and the program that I'm the series director for, for Julia Aloha, it's really about emotional truth. And so for these stories in my family where I, we did not have, we really did not have the information. My great-grandmother doesn't even have a name, and nobody knows when she died or what happened to her. And I'm like, how is that possible? Um, but it is possible. And, of course, again, this was in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and this is in, in China. I really just spent a lot of time trying to understand what was what my pers perspective of this was what the perspective was coming through different family members who shared stories with me my mother primarily and then i really looked at the language i looked i paid very close attention to how i wrote a story and how i shared what i knew and if it was something where i was really visualizing what I thought a truth could be, I tried to make it clear so the reader knew that. They knew that I was imagining, and they wouldn't be misled into thinking that this was in some family archive. And I just really, I think as a writer, one thing that we're called to do is to, one, really pay attention. And so I really paid attention, not just to my own life, but to how I was writing something and why I was writing this. And, you know, these are questions that I, I put forth to my students and clients all the time, like, why this story? Why is it important for you to write your memoir? And for me, I think because I'm in my 50s and I'm a woman and I'm a woman of color and I live in Hawaii and I'm Chinese American, I'm all of these things. And I think we're really aware of how important it is to amplify these voices. I decided, you know, in the past couple of years that I wanted my voice and the voice of the women in my family to have a place in history. And so I think that was the thing that kept me going when I got nervous about should I tell this story? Do I have a right to tell this story? Am I even doing it well? Maybe somebody else could tell it better. All those sort of self-doubt things that come in to writers, I was able to really get past it because it was really clear to me that it felt important to me personally. So, And, and that's what I would say for anybody who's trying to tell their family story is to let your doubt sit on one side and just write. And then when you're done writing, you can look at what you have and then decide what you want to do with it. That was Darian Shugi discussing her books, Allegiance and Other Small Histories. We'll have links to her work on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. And that's a wrap for today. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa takes you into the weekend for an Aloha Friday. Give us some feedback. What are your thoughts about the vaccines or anything else you might have heard on our air? Call our Talkback line. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm -hmm.